Hamas just released more hostages, but what about those kidnapped Americans? The lead starts right now. 12 more hostages freed, but not to American women. What happened to the deal cut last week that was thought to have included them? CNN teams working their sources. Plus, a CNN exclusive, the father of Emily Hand after reuniting with the nine-year-old kidnapped by Hamas. All of a sudden, the, the, the door opened up and she just ran. The joy, the relief, the trauma, and the pain for so many of these families. And brand new this hour in another exclusive, former Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney naming names. Her stunning new revelations about former Speaker Kevin McCarthy, former Speaker Nancy Pelosi, and what fellow Republicans would tell her secretly behind closed doors. Welcome to The Lead, I'm Jake Tapper. We start today with some breaking news. The fifth group of hostages released by Hamas in exchange for some prisoners, some Palestinian prisoners, is now back in Israel and headed to be reunited with their families. Newly released video shows the terrorist group handing the hostages over to the Red Cross earlier today inside Gaza. 12 hostages total, 10 Israelis were freed today, mainly older women today in the first release since the temporary pause was extended. The Israeli hostages released today are 84-year-old Ditsa Hyman, 78-year-old Tamar Metzger, 77-year-old Ophelia Reutemann, 75-year-old Ada Sagi, 63-year-old Clara Merman, 60-year-old Noraline Natali Babadia, 59-year-old Gabriella Lehmberg and her 17-year-old daughter Mia, 53-year-old Merav Tal, and 36-year-old Ramon Kirscht. As the hostages freed over the last few days make their way home to their families, we're starting to hear some of the heartbreaking and frankly brutal stories of what some of them experienced while in the custody of the group Hamas, which the United States considers to be a terrorist group. For example, the aunt of 12-year-old Eitan Yahalomi says, that he says Hamas forced him to watch videos of the October 7th attacks, murders and such. She told CNN affiliate BFMTV that Eitan was beaten after he was kidnapped and taken to Gaza, and that every time a child cried, Hamas threatened the child with a weapon to, quote, shut them up. His aunt also says that Eitan was forced to spend some of his days as a captive completely alone. Solitary confinement for a 12-year-old. Freed hostage Karen Munder and her family endured days of very little food, according to her cousin, who says Karen and her mother, Ruth, each lost somewhere between 13 and 18 pounds while in captivity. Some days, the only food they were given was pita bread and young Emily Hand, who turned nine while in captivity, also lost weight. Her dad, Thomas, told CNN, He's never seen her so pale. When they were reunited, Emily spoke to her dad only in whispers. He said it's because she'd been conditioned by Hamas to not make any noise. We're going to have more of Emily's story ahead on the lead. Clarissa Ward bringing us that story. But we're going to start today with CNN's Jeremy Diamond, who's at the Karim Shalom border crossing. Uh, that's where Israel, Gaza, and Egypt all meet. Jeremy, what's, what's happening there on the ground right now? And what happens next for this latest batch of newly freed hostages? 
Well, Jake, 12 more recently freed hostages are now on their way to hospitals in central Israel. We actually just saw uh, four helicopters altogether, one earlier in last hour and three more just now, taking off from the Karim Shalom crossing where those Israeli uh, hostages, as well as two Thai nationals, crossed into Israel from Egypt after initially going from Gaza into Egypt via that Rafah crossing. Those helicopters headed north uh, in the direction of central Israel. Uh, we know that among those 10 Israeli civilian hostages, uh, there is only one minor, a 17-year-old um, uh, Mia Leinberg, uh, who was uh, freed tonight. That's unusual. We've typically seen more children, more minors uh, released in previous iterations of this deal. Uh, but altogether, Jake, we now have 61 Israelis, 24 nationals who have been freed over the last five days. But now, Jake, attention is turning as we head into this second day tomorrow of this extended truce to whether or not it can be extended even further. We know that today the CIA director was in Doha, Qatar, uh, meeting with his uh, Israeli uh, and uh, Qatari and Egyptian intelligence counterparts to see whether a broader deal is possible, to see whether or not men uh, and soldiers can also start to be included in the next phase of this deal. For now, that is a massive open question and, of course, a lot hanging in the balance. The lives of those hostages still in Gaza, the hundreds of trucks of humanitarian aid that have crossed in, and, of course, that pause in the bombardments in the Gaza Strip. And, Jeremy, there were clashes earlier today between Israeli forces and Hamas. That, that would obviously be a violation of this pause. Tell us what happened. There certainly was, and now it's a question of who exactly violated the truce today. Hamas accuses Israel of violating the truce, and the Israeli military says that it was Hamas who, uh, and they provide some details about what they say happened. They say that three explosive devices uh, were detonated near uh, Israeli forces at two different locations. They say that multiple IDF soldiers were lightly injured uh, in that incident and that they returned fire towards Hamas. Hamas says that Israel uh, was the one that opened fire first, but clearly, uh, either way, this is the most significant break in this truce that we have seen so far. But for now, at least, Jake, it does not appear to be significant enough to call off this deal entirely. For now, we are still expecting 10 more Israeli civilian hostages to be released tomorrow and one additional day of that pause in fighting. Jake. All right, Jeremy Diamond, thanks so much. Let's bring in Barack Ravid. He's CNN's newest political and foreign policy uh, analyst. Uh, thanks so much for joining us, Barack, and, and welcome to CNN. Good to have you. Are you surprised that this pause has gone on for five days and appears to still be ongoing? Hi, Jake. It's, uh, it's great to be here on, on your show uh, and in CNN. Uh, I'm not really surprised. I think both sides have uh, a great interest that this pause will continue, at least for now, at least for several more days. That was, I think, one of the main issues on the table in this um, uh, spy chief direct, um, uh, summit in Doha, Qatar uh, today, trying to see if we can, uh, you know, continue this pause for another day, another two days, another three days, the maximum uh, amount of days possible, according to the Israeli cabinet decision, is overall nine-day pause. We are now at the end of the fifth day, so I think there's still some way to go. So the Israelis get hostages back, and Hamas gets, what, a, a breather and an opportunity to reconstitute itself and prepare to fight back against the IDF? 
First, a breather is something that Hamas really wants. So I think for them, it's really important. And second, I think what Hamas is banking on is the fact that, you know, we'll get to maybe nine days of pause and then they say, well, after nine days, could Israel really resume the operation the same way it did before the pause? Uh, it's an open question. Uh, if you ask the Israelis, they'll tell you, of course, we're going to resume uh, the operation. If you ask the Biden administration, you'll hear some more nuanced uh, uh, answers. But one very interesting thing is that during this spy chief summit in Doha today, the Israelis came with a very clear message because the Qataris came and said Hamas wants a new deal on more hostages and maybe on soldiers and men that they took uh, hostage. And the Israelis said, we are not going to discuss anything with you about a future deal before you finish releasing all the women and children that you still have in your custody. And this is between 30 to 40 women and children. So this means at least between three to four days of pause. And then, of course, as you note, there is this pressure, increasing pressure from the Biden administration and also from, uh, it seems, from the Brits as well, for the Israelis to be more careful when it comes to civilian casualties. Do you think there is any chance that the Israelis will take measures to reduce civilian casualties even when they resume uh, trying to go after Hamas? I think it's going to be a very tricky thing to do because... uh, they still have some uh, uh, neighborhoods in northern Gaza they still need to operate in. So that's not the problem because most of the people are out of there. But in southern Gaza, you have two million people. And to operate within such a dense uh, area, uh, it's, it's almost impossible for a military to operate there without causing great damage and civilian casualties. So I think this is going to be a main issue of contention between Israel and the U.S. going forward. What are you hearing about why the two American women have not yet been released, the two American women taken hostage by Hamas? I don't think there's an issue there, meaning I don't think Hamas is saying, oh, you're Americans, we're not going to release you. It's every day when the lists come in, sometimes there are negotiations uh, over them, sometimes they change, sometimes they change several times. I, but I think that as those two Americans are part of this group of 30 to 40 women and children that are still in Hamas custody, and Israel wants to get them back. So I think that if Hamas wants this pause to continue, it will have to uh, release them. And something else that I don't think a lot of Americans necessarily understand Hamas isn't the only group that has te- that has hostages. There are other terrorist groups and other militant groups that have hostages. There might even be just like criminal Palestinian groups that have hostages that just went into Gaza and just seized people as a, a crime of opportunity. Um, does Hamas even know who has all of the hostages? So first, the answer to this question is, of course, they know uh, completely well uh, who has those hostages. In some cases, they know because they've given them those hostages uh, to, to uh, look after them and to, uh, to um, uh, keep them in hiding. And one such example is the Bivas family. And I think maybe, you, I'm sure you saw it, and I'm sure our, our audience also saw it, this, the, a mother with two uh, redhead children. Yeah. Uh, one of them is 10 months old. Kfir Bivas, 10 months old, in Hamas tunnels in captivity for 50 days now. And those uh, mother and two kids are with a group that is not Hamas, but Hamas 
have given this group, this family. And I think that the reason the Israelis are saying we will not discuss any further deals before you release all women and children is because they want to press Hamas to bring this family back home. Barak Ravid, thanks and welcome back. Welcome to CNN again. Good to have you. Coming up next, the CNN Thank exclusive you. with Thomas Hand, what his daughter, just nine years old, told him about her days in captivity and her unspoken signs of trauma. Plus, Liz Cheney on the record, the excuse she says Kevin McCarthy gave her for that Mar-a-Lago visit oh, with Donald Trump. Plus, what she says Republicans have told her about the former president behind closed doors. Stay with us. Nearly two months after being ripped from their homes and torn apart from their families, freed hostages are returning to completely different lives in Israel. Some of them are waiting for other family members to be released. Others are just learning for the first time that their loved ones were killed by Hamas. Clarissa Ward spoke with one father, Thomas Hand. You might remember him. He initially thought that his daughter had been killed. He was actually grateful for it because of what he imagined Hamas might do to her. Then he found out that she was alive. And now, nine-year-old Emily is home safe. And she is slowly sharing the details of what happened to her after she was kidnapped by Hamas on October 7th. She said, she'll be here in a couple of minutes. I'm like, oh, don't believe it. And uh, all of a sudden, the, the, the door opened up and she just ran. It was, um, it was beautiful. Just like in, uh, just like I imagined it, you know, running together. Um, I squeezed, I probably squeezed too hard. It was a moment Thomas Hand thought would never come. Told his nine-year-old daughter Emily had been killed in the October 7th attacks, then that she was believed to be held hostage in Gaza. Finally, reunited with her family after 50 days in captivity, free but visibly haunted by her ordeal. The most shocking, disturbing part of meeting her was, um, she was just whispering. Mm. Couldn't hear her. I had to put my ear on her lips, like this close, and say, what did you say? Um, she said, I thought you were kidnapped. She thought I was in captivity. And what has she told you about what she's gone through? I thought she was in the tunnels, but she wasn't in the tunnels. They were actually fleeing from house to house. She doesn't like it to be referred to as Gaza. She says the kufsa, the box. So you have to say, like, how long were you in the box? The kufsa. She said a year. Um, so, apart from the whispering, that was like uh, a punch in the guts. There's that one photograph uh, right after your reunion, mm -hmm. and you're holding her, and there is this sort of seriousness to her facial expression. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, she's she's almost staring, isn't she? Uh, she? A little bit of a disconnect with everything going on around her. Has she cried? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, last night, 
she cried until her face was red and blotchy and she couldn't stop. She, I, she didn't want any comfort. I, think, I guess she's forgotten how to be comforted. Uh, I just had to wait until she came out of it by herself. Um, and she knows how to do that. She's a very determined little girl, very strong. I knew that her spirit would get her through it. There have been glimpses of the old Emily, happily walking the family dog, Johnsy. But many moments of pain, like when Thomas was forced to break the news to her that his ex-wife, Narquise, had been killed. Does Emily understand what happened on October 7th? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. unfortunately she does. Um, uh, how do you tell her? You know, your second mum is dead, killed, shot. When we got back to the hospital, I asked the psychiatrist, you know, what do I do? What should I do? What should I do? She said, you've just got to tell her straight. It's the best way. Okay. Oh, yeah. That was, that was very hard because we, we told her and, you know, her, her little eyes glazed up and she just went, Sharp, sharp in and take a breath. Terrible thing to tell a child, but um, as they recommend that you have to close the book. It sounds cruel, but you have to stop that hope. So, so you, 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 you've got to stop that. It has to be final. Our kiss is dead. And so. What is the next step now? How long do you stay here? How do you start a new life? The future is obviously get Emily back to health, and we will do that along the way. But the next thing is along the way is that we have to get all the children, obviously, all the women, all the men, all the hostages have to come back. They have to be brought back. Now, Jake, you heard Thomas talking about getting Emily back to health. Now, she is in good physical condition. There's no indication that she was physically abused in any way. She lost a lot of weight. Uh, she was very, very pale. She said that they didn't have enough to eat. But obviously, there is the psychological component here, the very fact that uh, she was only able to whisper because she's so frightened of raising her voice. He said that the only word she appeared to learn in Arabic was the word for be quiet, uh, which gives you an indication of the fear uh, that she was living through. He also talked about how she has very bad head lice, um, but all things considered, she is in reasonably good health physically. And one other important thing, when he talks about bringing the hostages back, he's very focused at the moment on the mother of Emily's very good friend, Hilla. This is the girl he had gone to the play date with. She had gone to the play date with, spent the night with, was kidnapped with, was held with, along with Hilla's mother, Raya Rotem, who acted like a second mother to her. And then inexplicably, at the last minute, two days before they were due to be released, Raya was separated from Emily and Hilla. You can imagine Hilla was released with Emily and the anguish that she is going through now, being separated 
from her mother. And, and this is a very important point for Thomas. He says, going forward, we need to keep fighting for all the hostages, but particularly uh, for Raya and try to get to the bottom of why it was that she was separated from her daughter just ahead of their release. Jake. All right. Clarissa Ward in Tel Aviv. Thank you so much for that report. Coming up next, uh, CNN exclusive, the new revelations from former Congresswoman Liz Cheney that you will hear for the first time right here on The Lead. The former Congresswoman's take on Kevin McCarthy and Nancy Pelosi and her warning about what she thinks will happen if Donald Trump becomes the 2024 Republican presidential nominee. Stay with us. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance, an emergency repair, or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. In our politics lead, former Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney of Wyoming delivering a devastating, devastating portrait of the Republican Party and former President Donald Trump. It's part of her new memoir due out next week. It's called Oath and Honor. CNN exclusively obtained a copy of the book and CNN special correspondent Jamie Gangel is here with all the juicy details. And Jamie, you, you tell me that Liz Cheney does not hold back. She does not. She names names. She has emails, text messages. Uh, I, I think the book is extraordinary because it goes behind the scenes. And for the first time, you're hearing details about her Republican colleagues, about the Republican Party, and really their cowardice is the word she uses in their support of Donald Trump. And, and here's just from one excerpt of the book. She says, Donald Trump cannot succeed alone. He depends upon enablers and collaborators. Every American should understand what his enablers in Congress and in the leadership of the Republican Party were willing to do to help Trump seize power in the months after he lost the 2020 presidential election and what he continues to do to this day. Jake, look, the book is unflinching. Um, you get personal conversations, Republican meetings. There is a revelation about she was on, on January 4th, by accident, a White House, a Trump surrogates call mm -hmm. that she describes where she hears uh, just the stark specific planning for January 6th. And she goes, uh, you tell me, uh, particularly after then House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, and she says, um, he said he told her that Trump knew right. he lost the 2020 election, and he, and he knew early on. Right. This is two days after the election. Cheney writes that 
uh, McCarthy told her that he had just spoken to Trump and that uh, McCarthy says, quote, he knows it's over. He just needs to go through all the stages of grief. Uh, Cheney then writes that it's, it's her wry sense of humor that the stages of grief also apparently included tweeting in all mm -hmm. cap letters. But Jake, there, there's also another sort of stunning anecdote about Kevin McCarthy. We all remember the photograph when just three weeks after January 6th, there it is, Kevin McCarthy goes running down to Mar-a-Lago. He's afraid he can't raise money anymore. And, and just, to, and just to, I'm sorry to interrupt, yeah, but no, this, no, is a, no. this is a lifeline. Everyone thought that the Republican Party was going to rid itself of Donald Trump. Everybody had spoken negatively about him. But then McCarthy does this, and it basically, you know, he's like Phoenix from the ashes. Donald Trump is renewed. Correct. And, and nobody knows this trip is happening. And uh, Cheney writes, actually, when she saw that photo, she thought it was a fake. Really? And then she confronts Kevin McCarthy about it, and she writes, get ready, Cheney, Mar-a-Lago? What the hell, Kevin? Kevin McCarthy, they're really worried. Trump's not eating, so they asked me to come see him. Cheney, what? You went to Mar-a-Lago because Trump's not eating? McCarthy, yeah, he's really depressed. <laughs> um, she also reveals that, look, she was not the only one. She, she talks about other Republicans were, quote, angry and disgusted yeah. that McCarthy had gone running back to Trump. And there's a text that's going around, and she writes that her Republican colleagues, quote, some mocked him circulating that Trump-McCarthy photo along with, get ready, the clip from the movie Jerry Maguire, where Tom Cruise tells Renee Zellweger, you complete me. Oh. And, and there are a lot of other headlines in the book in, in, that we're learning about for the first time, including about the new House Speaker, uh, Mike Johnson from Louisiana. Tell me about that. So to be clear, when Cheney was writing this book, she did not know that Mike Johnson was going to be the next Speaker of the right. House. Right, he was in leadership, but nobody thought he was going to be the Speaker anytime soon. Most people didn't know who he right. was in, in the public. But what she writes is now critical because she lays out specifically just the important role he was playing behind the scenes in enabling Trump. He was pressuring members, specifically freshman members, to support Trump in, in all of this. There, there are also details about her relationship with former Speaker Nancy Pelosi, two mm -hmm. people who could not be further apart politically about how Pelosi appointed her to the January 6th committee. Um, what it was like, Cheney writes, she felt like she was from another planet. But she also says that Pelosi always backed her up. Mm -hmm. The backstory of the two of them, and also that she was immediately impressed with Pelosi's leadership um, throughout. One story here about a Republican colleague that I think goes to the names names. Um, there's an extraordinary scene on January 6th that she recounts where Republican members are sort of being asked to sign these uh, sheets for electoral vote objections. And she writes about Congressman Mark Green of Tennessee. Yeah. And he's signing and she hears him and quote, 
As he moved down the line, signing his name to the pieces of paper, Green said, sheepishly, to no one in particular, the things we do for the orange Jesus. He called him the orange Jesus? Yes. Not exactly a, a compliment. Um, no. Cheney has said for a long time that she believes Donald Trump right. is dangerous. She sacrificed her political career, at least in the short term, right. to warn the country about him. What, is, what else is she willing to do about it? So as she told you in that great interview did a couple of weeks ago, she has not ruled out running for the White House right. herself. She has also said that if Trump is the Republican nominee, she is out of the Republican Party. She says in the book that she will do whatever it takes to make sure that Trump never goes back to the White House. She thinks he is absolutely a danger to democracy. Uh, one quote from her conclusion, she writes, quote, every one of us, Republican, Democrat, Independent, must work and vote together to ensure that Donald Trump and those who have appeased, enabled, and collaborated with him are defeated. That's it, a lot of people. It's, she, she thinks this has to be nonpartisan, that the checks and balances of our system will not hold if there is a second Trump term. Fascinating uh, stuff. We need to talk more about this, Jamie. Stick around. Um, coming up, is anyone listening to these warnings from Liz Cheney, anyone in the Republican Party, does she have persuadable power? We're going get to get into that next. Stay with us. We're continuing with our politics lead and the exclusive look at Liz Cheney's pending new memoir, Oath and Honor, that comes out next week. CNN's Jamie Gangel is back with us, along with CNN anchor Chris Wallace, host of the Chris Wallace Show on CNN, as well as Who's Talking to Chris Wallace on Max. That's a lot of shows. It's a lot of shows. And I, you know who was anchoring them. Well, they're both uh, the, Chris, my idea. Who, the Chris Wallace Show on CNN and Who's Talking to Chris Wallace on Max. Just, yes. They both have your name there. So anyway, Chris, even if... Trump loses in 2024, and Liz Cheney does not formally leave the Republican Party. She is going farther than she's ever gone before with this book. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, she's taking receipts here yeah, yeah. And, and, and telling about inside conversations. And I can't say there's a single one of them you go, well, I don't believe that. I mean, I, lo <laughs> I love the story that, that is in the book that you uh, have an excerpt from, uh, Jamie, where Cheney says that, that McCarthy said to her, hey, I talked to Trump, he knows he lost, and then he goes on Fox that night and says, oh, no, he won the election. <laughs> so, you know, this is not the most reliable source of, of what's going on. Uh, and, and I agree with something you said earlier, which is you cannot overstate the January 8, 28th meeting at Mar-a-Lago because there was a real question at that point is, was the Republican establishment going to stand by Donald Trump or not? And remember, this is before the impeachment, and people like Mitch McConnell are saying, I don't know what I'm going to do, but, you know, I, this is unacceptable. Uh, what's it? Uh, McCarthy himself had said that Trump bore responsibility. So did Kevin, so, yeah, McCarthy, yeah, Kevin McConnell and right. McConnell. on January. Yeah. And then he goes down there, and that was just a statement yeah. that, you know what, uh, we're still tied to this guy. What of the revelations in the book? Surprised you the most. I love the one of McCarthy saying like, that he had to go down to Mar-a-Lago because Donald was depressed and he wasn't eating. He's not eating. First of all, I, that alone I find surprising. But, but 
but just because he's a man of healthy appetites, I don't mean that disparagingly. But but the idea that he would even try to peddle that malarkey to Liz Cheney, I find amazing. But what of all the stories in there, what's the most surprising to you? I think actually it's the number of stories like that. It is the hypocrisy. It's the duplicity. It's all of these things are being said in private. And they're mocking Trump and they're saying, well, we just need to do this one last thing or he's not eating, or we know he's lost. Or what I do for the orange Jesus. What I do for the orange Jesus. I'm going to contest the electoral vote because I got to, but I don't believe it. Yeah, Mark Green, who I thought was a true believer. I mean, some of these guys you can say, like, this one is just going along to get along. This, you know, you you game out who, this one's just being quiet, you know. But uh, Congressman Mark Green, I kind of just thought he was a true believer, but he called Trump, the orange Jesus, according to Liz Cheney, that's surprising to me. And as he's sitting there, literally putting his name on objections to the counting the electoral vote in specific states. Right. Yeah. The things we do. Right. And that sort of summarizes all of it. I also think she, look, she has, throughout the book, she talks about Mitch McConnell, how at first he told her that, you know, he, he was in favor of the impeachment. And she watches his evolution and then pulling back. So I think it's this notion that they were all in the right place for about 15 minutes. And then they all went running back to Trump. I remember the Senate came very close to convicting Trump. What was it, 57 votes? 57, but I was looking at that actually today. They needed 67, so they were 10 shy. Oh, okay. But, but still, it was 57. I mean, that gives you an indication of how much even Republicans had turned on Trump. And that just seems like a different universe than where we are today. And, and, the, and the Speaker Johnson revelations, the idea right. that, um, that w- what does she mainly say about him, that Johnson was very easily buttered up by praise from Trump? So she says that he seemed, you know, he wanted Trump's flattery. He wanted, But I think the important part about Johnson is there really is chapter and verse in here about the role that he was playing at the time. And you have to take from that her clear concern that when you get to 2024, if the Republicans are still in charge of the House, if he is still Speaker, this is someone who will do what Donald Trump wants but, him to but do. But the bottom line to me is the first thing that you said, which is, and a lot of people say it, Liz Cheney isn't alone, which is that she very much worries whether the system that was set up right. by the founders in the 1770s, Correct. the checks and balances, the Constitution, whether it will hold yeah. the institutions if Trump is reelected, knowing what he knows now, with the attitude he has now, with the I ain't worried about an establishment and, and showing you know, that I've got people like uh, you know, Jim Mattis, uh, you know, that he is, as he calls it, it's the retribution tour. Yeah. Adam Kinzinger said to me one time, you know, sometimes you drive on a highway and you see a guardrail, and you see where a car, a car hit it, and it's all smashed and dented, right? And that's fine. It, it saved the car that time. But what about the next time the car hits that guardrail? That's exactly her conclusion. It is chilling. The guardrails, in her opinion, are gone. Jimmy Gagale and Chris Wallace. And don't forget, you can watch The Chris Wallace Show Saturday mornings at 10 o'clock Eastern right here on CNN. And his other show, 
who's talking Are to Chris Are you trolling Lawson. me at this point? No, I'm, I'm promoting your show. Chris. Uh, now you made me forget. It's going, who's talking to Chris Wallace? Okay. There are two of them uh, streaming on Max, which, by the way, you can also watch The Lead on Max. Next year on The Lead on CNN, the new offer to House Republicans from President Biden's son, Hunter. Stay with us. In our politics lead, Hunter Biden, the president's son, who is the subject of an investigation led by Republicans in the House Oversight Committee, as well as a federal investigation, said today that he is willing to answer lawmakers' questions with this stipulation that he gets to testify in public and not behind closed doors. CNN's Manu Raju is live for us on Capitol Hill. Manu, why does Hunter Biden want to testify in public? And I would assume House Republicans would be keen to accept the offer. Yeah, House Republicans have been demanding all year Hunter Biden's testimony. They issued that subpoena last month. That subpoena called for his testimony in a private deposition behind closed doors. Hunter Biden's team is saying he will testify, but in public. And the reason why they say that if not, they argue that his testimony will be leaked and it will be distorted. In the views of his lawyers, they say this. We have seen you use closed door sessions to manipulate, even distort the facts and misinform the public. We therefore propose opening the door if as you claim your efforts are important and involve issues that Americans should know about, then let the, sh- let the light shine on these proceedings. Now, the House Republicans are not going for this. Both House Oversight Chairman James Comer as well as the House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan say that first, Hunter Biden must come before closed doors and then they would consider having an open public hearing. This is what James Comer says. He says Hunter Biden is trying to play by his own rules instead of following the rules required of everyone else. That won't stand with House Republicans. Our lawfully issued subpoena to Hunter Biden requires him to appear for a deposition on December 13th. We expect full cooperation with our subpoena for a deposition, but also agree that Hunter Biden should have the opportunity to testify in a public setting at a future date. And Jake, as you know, this is all part of the Republican impeachment inquiry into Joe Biden, trying to draw a link between Hunter Biden's business activities and Joe Biden's actions as vice president. They do not have proof tying the two together, but they are hoping that they can reveal some in this closed door and also potentially public testimony. We'll see if it gets to that point or if this standoff will persist. So how are House Democrats reacting? Well, they're pushing back and they're siding with the uh, Hunter Biden attorneys. Jamie Raskin, who is the top Democrat on the House Oversight Committee, uh, said, let me get this straight. After wailing and moaning for 10 months about Hunter Biden and alluding to some vast unproven family conspiracy, Chairman Comer and Oversight Republicans now reject his offer to appear in public. So you're seeing how Democrats will respond, signing with Hunter Biden. The question is, what's next? All right, Manu Raju, thanks so much. As Hamas releases a new set of hostages today, what the Biden administration is telling Israel ahead of the pause in fighting possibly ending and the next phase of the war recommencing. Stay with us. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts.
Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. And moments ago, newly released Israeli hostages just reached a hospital in Tel Aviv. They, uh, among them, are 11, uh, I'm sorry, among them are 10 Israelis and two Thai nationals. They were free today. No Americans, no Americans were released today, as had been hoped. And those left behind also include the youngest Israeli hostage, 10-month-old Kfir Bibas. He was kidnapped October 7th alongside his four-year-old brother Ariel. The boy's cousin told CNN this today. They had to go through gunshots and shouting and blood and body parts in the street. This is the reality they had uh, to go through. And now, 53 days, they're going through this nightmare and they, it, it doesn't make any sense. Like, are these the enemies of Hamas? Are these the enemies of anyone? Could, could, should these children be used as bargaining chips? It, it, no, they shouldn't. Meanwhile, it is believed that Hamas does not have dozens of other hostages, that those hostages have likely been placed with other terrorist groups, such as the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, which further complicates efforts to secure those hostages' release. Back in the United States, senior Biden administration officials are begging Israel to try to be more precise and take fewer risks in future strikes in Gaza against Hamas once the pause in fighting ends. Coming up this hour, we're going to take you to Gaza and speak with humanitarian worker on the ground there. Also ahead this hour, a major boost for a runner-up in the 2024 Republican field in the form of a big, shiny endorsement from one of America's richest families. But first... Let's go right to CNN's Oren Lieberman in Tel Aviv. And Oren, what do you know about the condition of this latest group of hostages released today who appear to be mostly older women? Jake, first, let's take a look at this video right now. This is moments ago at Sheba Hospitals, one of the largest hospitals in the country, not that far from where we're standing right now. This is shortly after a helicopter landed bringing the hostages from Kerem Shalom, from the crossing where they had entered Israel, and taking them to Sheba Medical Center. Eight of the hostages taken there. We have not yet gotten an update on their condition. We expect that sometime later on tonight, perhaps very early tomorrow morning. Two other Israeli hostages were taken to Ichilov Medical Center, also in Tel Aviv. And then two foreign nationals were taken to Shamir, a Safarofeh medical center. That's where all of the foreign nationals has got, have gone. You can see those uh, hostages, I'm sorry, those, yeah, those freed hostages being loaded on the buses there after coming off the helicopters. As you point out, those are elderly women. In fact, of the 10 hostages released, only one was a minor. One was a 17-year-old Israeli woman. Those now being treated and they'll begin the process of the medical evaluations and, of course, the mental health checks that are the far more complicated, far more difficult part of the entire process. Crucially, the process worked today and the truce held, and that was a major question. It played out a little later than we thought it would, but as you can see from these images, it did, in fact, play out, and that bodes well for tomorrow, where we expect the release of another 10 Israeli women and children in exchange for another 30 Palestinian prisoners, women and children released from Israeli jails. We, of course, saw that happen tonight as well. The question, what happens beyond that? Uh, CIA Director Bill Burns in Qatar, where the majority of these negotiations have taken place, the U.S. trying to extend this beyond that to include not only women and children, but also elderly men and IDF soldiers, uh, men and women, that, however, uh, Jake, remains a very challenging question at this time. And Oren, both Hamas and Israel are accusing each other of violating 
uh, this pause in fighting today. There was a skirmish in Gaza, I think northern Gaza. What exactly happened and what might this mean uh, for any hopes of this pause continuing at least a few more days? Jake, this was the clearest violation of the ceasefire terms to this point. Of course, different stories from both sides here. Israel says three explosive devices were detonated near their troops who were sitting in agreed-upon positions. They also say they came under fire and returned fire. Meanwhile, Hamas accused Israel of initiating skirmishes. Regardless of how this exactly happened, and of course we're not in Gaza, so we can't verify exactly how this played out on the ground, the truce itself held. We have seen it on fragile, thin ice before. But the terms of the truce held together, aid continued to go in, the hostages continued to come out, and at least in the short term, Jake, it bodes well for tomorrow. After that, again, as I said, very much an open question at this point. All right, CNN's Orrin Lieberman in Tel Aviv for us. Thanks so much. CNN's senior White House correspondent MJ Lee and CNN's chief national security correspondent Alex Marquardt uh, join us now. Um, MJ is, well, I'm sure they are disappointed, but to what does the White House attribute the fact um, that other than the two Americans at the very beginning of this crisis, in this, in this batch of Hamas releases over the last few days, only one American has been released so far, that, that four-year-old little girl whose parents were murdered. Yeah, I mean, they had definitely hoped that by the end of the four-day uh, pause that three Americans would have gotten out. So far, we've only seen Abigail Adan uh, on Sunday. You know, when you speak to U.S. officials that are close to this, I mean, this is a very, very, very difficult uh, situation. I don't think I've heard a single U.S. official uh, talking to me about the hostages ever say anything with 100 percent sort of confidence. There are caveats attached to everything, right? Uh, their whereabouts, their uh, conditions, uh, not in addition to the fact that Hamas just simply can't be trusted. Uh, one interesting thing that a senior official told me yesterday, though, uh, is that so far they don't believe that Hamas is sort of purposely holding back these American hostages. But that does get to Hamas's motives, which I think nobody feels confident talking yeah. about. I'm going to have to ask uh, Naftali Bennett, the former prime minister. We're talking to him in a few minutes. We'll see what he says. Alex, the CIA director, Bill Burns, he's back in Qatar. Uh, where a lot of these negotiations are taking place. What should we make of his frequent trips there? Yeah, it's a remarkable meeting today with his Israeli, Qatari, and Egyptian counterparts to talk about these hostage negotiations. This really sends the message that he is the Biden administration's point man on all things hostages. Um, he really is a, a, not just the U.S. spy master, but he's a very capable diplomat, longtime diplomat, well-respected in the region. So he is out there to push what the administration wants right now, the efforts to get those American hostages out, to extend this pause. And then, Jake, to broaden this conversation out into the much more difficult conversations, getting those men back, the negotiations about those IDF soldiers uh, who are being held. And really to, um, to echo what the White House is saying in that if Israel is going to start up their military operations again, what the, White, the U.S. wants to see is a much more cautious approach, a much more surgical approach. And, and speaking of that, the, the surgical approach, um, this is I've been hearing this from the administration and, and frankly, from Democrats and Republicans in Congress that they want Israel to be more surgical when the fighting resumes, which everybody expects it will at some point, because unless Hamas surrenders or, you know, decides to go on a cruise to, to, to Yemen, that Israel's going to go back. They're not giving up until Hamas is gone. Uh, and they want the civilian casualties to lessen at the very least. Um, do, or is Israel going to start listening? Do the administration think? 
I mean, U.S. officials say that uh, Israel has been heeding their advice, at least in part. Um, they have been stressing, you know, particularly in anticipation of the offensive starting up again after the pause is over, that when it comes especially to southern Gaza, that they want to see operations that are more targeted, that are more surgical, that they want the Israelis to be more uh, just deliberate and careful. Um, they are saying that we have seen them take that advice, at least in part. They said basically that the operations actually would have been even bigger in scale uh, were it not for the U.S. Uh, I think, Jake, we're seeing this sort of interesting rhetorical shift uh, coming from the White House. You know, in the early days, we were hearing a lot of emphasis on the U.S. can't tell the, tell the Israelis what to do. We are not involved in making their military decisions. And now uh, we're getting a lot of we are advising them. They are mm -hmm. taking our advice. Um, they seem to be sort of uh, helping to shape the tactical decisions. This is according to U.S. officials. Uh, I think the administration knows that there are real questions about whether Israel really can go back to doing what it was doing once this pause is over, both politically and militarily. Speaking. Yeah, I mean, obviously the biggest problem is that Hamas embeds within the population. It's not like there's a Hamas military base in Gaza. The whole area is a Hamas military base. Thanks to both of you for being here. And former Israeli Prime Minister and Defense Minister Naftali Bennett joins us now. Uh, sir, thank you so much for joining us. We have only seen one American hostage in this round of hostage releases. Obviously, there were two American hostages released at the beginning. But in this round, in this uh, round of hostage releases by Hamas, only one American has been released, despite U.S. pressure. Why do you think that is? I think it's uh, just random. Uh, from Israel's perspective, we don't make a distinction uh, between the Israelis that are uh, in, in captivity and have been uh, kidnapped by Hamas, regardless of their particular foreign citizenship. Uh, we, we don't care. We want them all back. So we're working hard to do that. Who is deciding who gets released? Is that just random by Hamas? No, it's um, the negotiations going on and it's uh, done primarily by criteria uh, that Hamas is not abiding to, but uh, by and large, getting uh, children and their parents out together. Uh, Hamas is deliberately sometimes keeping one or two of the parents uh, back in, uh, in Gaza. Um, but children, uh, young people and the parents of children first, uh, and then later on the rest. Even though you were not in office on October 7th, you still say you bear responsibility for the failures um, of the Israeli government that led to what happened on that day. The current prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, still has not acknowledged responsibility. The longer this war goes on, um, it seems like Netanyahu is growing weaker in the eyes of the Israeli public, at least according to polls. Do you think he's going to continue to get weaker and weaker? I don't want to comment on uh, domestic Israeli politics, and certainly I won't uh, attack um, the prime minister on foreign press. Uh, we're all focused on winning the war. I want to ask you about Israeli strikes on Gaza, because ultimately this pause in hostilities is going to end. And Israel is going to continue to try to destroy Hamas. Um, one thing I continue to hear from Israeli supporters 
in the U.S. government, whether it's the Biden administration or Congress, whether they're Democrats or Republicans, I keep hearing that the IDF needs to be much more careful when it comes to Palestinian civilians in Gaza, that the IDF needs to use more precision munitions, that the IDF needs to take fewer risks. Even if the conservative estimates are right, with 15,000 killed, even if 5,000 of them are Hamas, that's still a two to one ratio of civilians to Hamas. That's a lot of civilians who have been killed. Is Netanyahu going to continue to ignore President Biden on this issue of civilian casualties? Well, Jake, uh, we're not magicians. Uh, There's no magic uh, way to to, um, dramatically reduce uh, collateral damage when Hamas's deliberate goal, intentional goal, is to increase uh, Gaza uh, casualties in order for you to ask me that precise question. You see, Hamas wants to stop the war in a cynical way by it effectively killing its own people by placing them in harm's way. If there were some magical solution where we could tweezer people out uh, and and just hit the, the rocket launcher that's shooting rockets at Israelis, we would do it. We do try to reduce uh, unnecessary civilian casualties, but the reality is that there's no magic. The current ratio, the current ratio is lower than what it was at the beginning and low in international standards uh, from World War II through Iraq and Afghanistan, you'll see that Israel has one of the lowest ratios. What do you think is going to happen in Gaza after the war is over? What will Gaza look like? And who is going to take over? Who is going to keep order? Well, I'll tell you what I uh, think we ought to do. Um, the first thing is to fully uh, disarm uh, Gaza and ensure that it's uh, uh, th- there's no more arms, no more explosives there after we dismantle and eliminate Hamas. I mean, the first thing is to kill the Hamas leadership and the and the terrorists. Then clean up uh, Gaza from uh, weapons and explosives, so something like this can never happen again. The third thing I would do uh, is create a buffer zone into Gaza of about one and a half kilometers deep which would become a no man's land between Gaza and Israel. Again, so this sort of thing could not happen. And uh, Israel would retain overall security and defense responsibility, but we don't want to govern the Gazans. So what I think we would do is create an interim technocratic uh, self-government that that would, uh, say, for about five years, uh, govern Gaza, denazify Gaza, which means... Uh, clean out all the incitement, all the education that all Jews are pigs and devils. And after five years, we would revisit and figure out how to create a a sustainable uh, government, perhaps with our Abraham uh, Accord partners, uh, countries in in that area. Well, what do you mean by denots? I mean, no no free speech. People can't say nasty things about Jews. Get rid of them. How? No, uh, free speech uh, doesn't allow for educating and poisoning the minds and hearts. Of, okay, so you mean uh, like the in the education? You, you mean in the education system? Yes, get rid of that the education system okay. and, the, and, and the media. We cannot, here's what we learned. One of the lessons learned is that when people are incited uh, with propaganda from the moment they're born 
though they are 20 years old, that, that, that all Jews are pigs and devils and need, to, and need to be slaughtered, well, they go out and slaughter Jews. And if it's something that we used to sort of uh, uh, procrastinate on or, or not take care of, we can't. We can't ignore it anymore. But don't you think the last six weeks have done a lot to in, incite and inspire a whole new generation of terrorists? I mean, all the civilian deaths? I mean, don't you worry that that in itself is going to raise and inspire a whole new generation of Palestinians who hate Israelis? It depends what we do next. I want to remind you that in Nazi Germany, in the final months of the war, there were many, many uh, civilian casualties, yet uh, Germany was denazified in the war, and we had in Germany. So uh, obviously, as I said, we don't have a goal of uh, killing civilians. We have a goal of reducing the number of death, dead civilians. But look, if, if anyone has a magic plan how to eradicate Hamas, uh, uh, without any collateral damage, bring it on and, and we'll adopt it. Barring that, we're going to have to get the job done and then denazify Gaza. Former Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett, thank you so much, sir. Appreciate your time. Thank you, Jake. Up next, a status check from inside Gaza and the 24-7 operation to get critical resources there before this pause in fighting ends. And this today from Russia, American Paul Whelan, the Marine who's locked up there, says he was attacked by a fellow prisoner. What he's telling CNN about the incident, that's coming up. Staying in our world lead, the Red Crescent reports that 200 trucks carrying much needed food and water and baby formula and blankets have arrived in Gaza since the pause in fighting, but the Red Crescent also claims that today the IDF blocked a fuel truck from entering northern Gaza. While this much-needed aid arrives, the World Health Organization is warning that disease could kill more people in Gaza than airstrikes as the humanitarian crisis grows more dire by the day. Let's bring in UNICEF spokesman James Elder. He joins us on the phone from Gaza. Uh, he's on the phone because the internet connection in Gaza is too poor for us to access. James, while this temporary truce has been extended for another two days, it's still not a lot of time to get in all the humanitarian aid needed for the millions of people in Gaza. Describe what you've seen the last few days and the toll it's taken on people, especially children. Yeah, look, just immense destruction, desperation. I think just almost the death on the streets, Jake. You know, it just tells me consistently of this war's relentless assault on, on civilians and on children. You know, it tells me the story of a war on children. This is a place, as you know, it was full of energy and life and a, like a collective darkness seems to have fallen upon the Gaza. But as you say, look, the aid coming in, it's the right type of aid, but the enormity of need. Hospitals are, are, look like war zones and, and camps where people used to live in apartments with televisions and nice warm beds. So it, it's desperate. It's the right aid. But it's not enough, and this, it only will be enough if this pause turns into a prolonged ceasefire. You said you visited a hospital. You could smell rotten flesh. You saw children with ghastly wounds untreated because of the lack of medical aid. How dire is the situation when it comes to medical needs? Oh, it's horrendous. If, if a child getting a lot of diarrhea or a lot of serious illnesses now because of unclean water, parents know what their children need. Jake, they can't give it to them. Those children are not going to get care. I go into a hospital and you see doctors tireless, 
doctors who have worked around the clock having to make decisions on children with horrendous wounds of war, shrapnel, eye injuries, broken bones, which ones do they treat? I helped carry a boy off a bus who had already lost a leg and had, had not had treatment for three days because he'd come down from Sheepa Hospital. We got him off the bus and then he sat, lay on the floor in a hospital. They're war zones, these hospitals. But again, doctors were treating other people, people who may have been bleeding out or something. So I've not seen anything like it. Everywhere you turn is a, story, is a scenario like this. And again, it just speaks to, I think, why, you know, I guess every conversation around this should come back to empathy. And it does, I think, worry UNICEF and worry me that some can overlook these scenes and these tragic deaths. And indeed, some are comfortable that the idea that these horrors, these attacks may start again. The images of the babies in the NICU transported out of Gaza to Egypt, they're, they're just heartrending. We see three to even four sharing the same beds. What can you tell us about those, how those babies are doing? Yeah, good news, you know, good news for those that got out. Not not all did, bless, but but those that did, you know, they're in Egypt, they're in peace, they're in hospitals that they should have the proper care. Yeah, so it's, it's it's everything you want to see. It seems like that's that's what life is. It's these these sweet Israeli kids who got out, you know, the, the torment over, the hostages released, these children in in incubators, Jake, out of Gaza. But there's more than a million children who who are not, you know, the children who literally grabbed me as I walked through a camp in tears, beautifully articulate, where these brilliant brains merge with beautiful hearts and just say, you know, where's, where's the dignity? Why, why does nobody, why does nobody care? I just want to go home. You know, I had a, a young girl, Jake, who said the only time she'd seen homelessness was when she was doing her Fulbright scholarship in D.C. She'd never seen it in Gaza. It's everywhere in Gaza. Everyone's almost homeless. Mm. UNICEF's Jane Elder in Gaza. Thank you. Please stay in touch with us. Thank you. Coming up, a major win today for 2024 Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley and not a Republican, not not a major win for Donald Trump. Stay with us. Our 2024 lead. Come on, guys. Cue the music. You know, I love the election. Thank you. It's like Elvis Costello to me. We're just 48 days before the Iowa caucuses and Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley has picked up a huge endorsement from a very influential, powerful, and let's be honest, super rich pack backed by the Koch brothers. This endorsement gives Haley a very significant financial boost as time is quickly running out for any of Donald Trump's rivals to catch up to the Republican frontrunner. Let's bring in our political panel to discuss. So Kevin Madden, a Trump campaign spokesman, didn't even let Haley have a moment to relish <laughs> the incoming cash. Uh, they said, and, you know, they're, they're, they have a way with words. Let's put it that way. No amount of shady money from George Soros, Democrats, and never-Trump rhinos in partnership with endless war swamp creatures in Washington. And that, by the way, that does not describe yeah. the, the yeah. Koch brothers. But <laughs> will stop the MAGA movement or President Trump from being the Republican nominee and defeating crooked Joe Biden. That's the Trump people. Spokesman for Ron DeSantis, who won the support of Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds, criticized the Koch brothers' endorsement of Haley, saying every dollar spent on Nikki Haley's candidacy should be reported as an in-kind contribution to the Trump campaign. What what do you make of it? Well, I mean, I think it's kind of par for the course in that um, 
the Trump campaign does what it does best is they attack everything. Right. And anything that moves away from Donald Trump. So that makes sense that they're doing that. Um, DeSantis is a little bit more puzzling because, like, first of all, I think anytime you see one of your opponents get an endorsement in the campaign, first of all, you don't want to showcase no. it. Right. Right. You want to bring attention to it. And I think that does this. And um, you also want to show a level of poise, which is that you're so confident in your organization, you're confident in your message, you're confident in the momentum that your campaign has, that you're not worried about it. And instead, trumpet the endorsements that you have. And I think the endorsement that Ron DeSantis got last week from uh, Bob Vanderplatz is a very significant endorsement. If you look at the last two folks that have won the Republic, if you look at Santorum in 20. 12 and Huckabee in 2008, that endorsement was key to the momentum that they had. So in winning Iowa, yeah, winning Iowa, yeah, winning Iowa, if it's, nothing else, right? But they have a, it has an organizational value to it. Focus on that. Don't be worried about what Nikki Haley has. I, I still find it interesting that Nikki Haley, by all accounts according to polls, is the strongest Republican candidate against Joe Biden, mm-hmm. and yet she is nowhere close. To Donald Trump, she might be the strongest Republican, according to some polls in some states, uh, against Donald Trump. You know, compared to DeSantis, but she's still Donald Trump's far and above. Yeah, they all are. I guess the question is, what is Ron DeSantis? What is Chris Christie? I'm not even going to consider really the big. He's like at one percent now, but what are they going to do? Who is going to blink first and get out of this race? Because with all three of them in there, Donald Trump wins. Like, no one is going to be able to overcome him. But if even Chris Christie gets out of the race, most likely his support will go to Nikki Haley. Whether DeSantis, they probably split Donald Trump and Nikki Haley. But that's one reason why. I think the other reason is because she's a woman and we've never had a female president. First choice for Let's put that poll up again, guys. I'm, I'm coming to it right now. Don't be impatient. The Des Moines Register NBC News poll. Shows Trump with a commanding lead over his nearest rivals, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. They're tied, tied for second. I mean, it's that's not bad. Sixteen and sixteen. I mean, I guess yeah. it, if you consolidate it, it would be thirty-two and still in striking distance. But you know, I, I mean, like the thing that you look on as you look at with polls is the trend line, and clearly the trend line is good for Nikki Haley. Like right. She's got a level of momentum right now. Ashley's right. Can she turn that into some level of consolidation? So far, we haven't really seen that. The thing that I would worry about if I were on any of, the, any of these campaigns other than Trump is that it's taken on sort of a feeling of a very conventional track that we had in 2016, which is that the dominant force in the race, Trump, yeah. is sort of left to his own devices. And the other campaigns are sort of fighting over uh, the non-Trump vote rather than really focusing and training their efforts on consolidating the non-Trump vote and putting and training their attacks on Trump. And he's sort of gotten away with with not many, not at least a broad and sustained effort from one campaign. And now you have Bernie Marcus, the co-founder of Home Depot, endorsing Trump's campaign for re-election. And it seems to be kind of like this, I, I'm, I'm interpreting, so don't be mad, uh, Mr. Marcus, if, if I'm wrong, but it seems to be like, he's going to get the nomination. I might as well just get on board now. He wrote, we cannot let his brash style be the reason we walk away from his otherwise excellent stewardship of the United States during his first term in office, I guess, except for the COVID part. Um, but uh, I was going to say, when, I, when, I, when I, I grew up in Yonkers, New York, and when I first started out in politics, city politics, there was an old saying that if they're going to run you out of town, get in front and make it look like you're leading your own parade. 
that kind of a, that principle kind of applies to fundraisers more than anything. I mean, he his great first term. Hello, January six. Like our our country was on the brink of our democracy falling apart, and we're going to credit he separated children from their mothers. I mean, so many things that he did is not the reason you you know. I guess if that's why he's endorsing him, but it wouldn't be because he is most likely had a great first term, maybe because he could potentially win. So um, Jamie Gangel had some great exclusive excerpts from uh, Congresswoman Liz Cheney's new memoir comes out next week. And there is this part where uh, Liz Cheney confronts Kevin McCarthy on when he went down to Mar-a-Lago and basically, basically threw uh, Donald Trump this lifeline after January 6th. And it's just this incredible, <laughs> incredible story. Cheney goes up to him, Mar-a-Lago? What the hell, Kevin? McCarthy says, they're really worried. Trump's not eating, so they asked me to come see him. Cheney, what? You went to Mar-a-Lago because Trump's not eating? McCarthy, yeah. Yeah. He's really depressed. Well, I'm sure. I hope you enjoy, first of all, I hope you enjoyed my dramatic It was career. great. <laughs> I really put some Stanislavski skills to the. Very good. Thank you. I mean, it's, it's, they're, they're rationalizing their support for Trump. He wasn't even eating, Kevin. He wasn't eating. And, the, you know, the reason why is that Trump has the one, or I guess the two things that they all want, which is the adulation and the small dollar donations of the most active, most vocal GOP-based voters. Can I just say that um, if the Republican Party wants somebody who is not eating because he can't accept the results of the election, like this is the leader of the free world that has nuclear codes, like that's who we want? Okay. Or doesn't, y'all want? Doesn't, he doesn't look not like, us. He doesn't look like he wasn't eating. Nobody right. shaming. Nobody shaming. All right. Thank you both. Coming up, what we are learning about a rather serious Cyber attack and the suspected Iranian hackers claiming they took control of the computer system at a U.S. water supply station. Stay with us. In our world lead, former U.S. Marine Paul Whelan, who is wrongfully detained in Russia, is now saying that he was assaulted by a fellow prisoner in that Russian jail. Whelan tells him that a Turkish prisoner who has anti-American leanings Punched him in the face earlier today in a remote labor camp where they're being kept. Whelan says other prisoners stepped in to help him, and he was able to visit the prison doctor. Whelan has been detained unjustly in Russia for nearly five years and has been left behind in prisoner swaps between the United States and Russia. In our national lead, a growing digital threat with real consequences, real world, world consequences, the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security are investigating a cyber attack aimed at taking down a water station Outside Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, a pro-Iranian hacking group has claimed responsibility here to outline what we know and how this latest attack fits into other cyber threats. Recently is Sean Lingus, CNN's cybersecurity reporter, and John Miller, CNN's chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst. Sean, what do we know about this pro-Iran hacking group and, and why they targeted this particular plant in Pittsburgh? Well, Jake, well, I think... So, Sean, sorry. let me do Sean. Sorry. Let me, let me enunciate Sounded like better. John to me. Sorry. Sean. <laughs> Sean. My bad. No problem. Uh, Jake, the, this particular group has been pretty rampant around um, geopolitical conflicts like what we have right now with Iran and, uh, I'm sorry, Israel and Hamas. Uh, they call themselves a hacktivist group, a you know, politically motivated group that's trying to uh, make statements. But in reality, this is one of several groups that a lot of uh, cybersecurity researchers and U.S. officials think is, is doing the bidding of the Iranian government. 
And um, it's more about noise and, and uh, sort of information operation than it is actual impact on the ground. So what we saw here was this, this hacking group getting access to industrial equipment at this Pennsylvania water facility. I talked to the general manager. Uh, he had no idea that he would be caught up in, in, in a uh, geopolitical event like this. I asked him if he anticipated being uh, you know, the subject of, of, of attention from Iranian hackers. He's like, no, we got 15,000 people in our in our, our community that we're trying to get water to. Right. Um, so they were startled by this and they called the feds immediately. Um, there was no threat directly to the water systems, but it's really another shot across the bow in terms of U.S. critical infrastructure and um, sometimes the ease with which uh, some of these hackers are able to gain access to systems, Jake. And, and John Lingus, the, the water plant was able to keep the systems running. They, they caught it early. They caught it early. Um, they are uh, playing it safe. They are changing out the equipment, he told me. Uh, they're cooperating with the FBI. They gave the FBI a, a digital copy of the hacked computer. Uh, and so they are very much uh, trying to cooperate. And uh, never in a million years, they said, uh, did they imagine being caught in this uh, sort of crossfire. And John Miller, talk, if you would, about this, the, the larger issue we hear, the cyber threat from Iran and Russia and China, because this is this is a big deal in the in the growing in the in the coming years. It's going to become a bigger deal, and and it's going to touch ma ma many more of us. Well, it is, and this is one of the things. One of the things we did in New York City, uh, working with uh, the Manhattan District Attorney, the NYPD's Intelligence Bureau, the FBI's Cyber Task Force, was to create something called CCSI, which was basically to take all of our critical infrastructure partners, that's water, power, cellular phones, hospitals, basically, Jake, all the systems that, you know, cannot fail, and get them together as a task force where we were able to, um, if one of them was attacked, all of their experts would come together to fight that attack. But more importantly, we were feeding them intel every day on these are the indicators of compromise. Search for them. These are the IP addresses the bad guys are using to get in. Search for them and lock them out so that this was a constant daily affair. I think what Sean um, is, is sharing with us also is they've taken to targeting smaller places uh, with lower levels of defenses to try and learn their way into systems and to exploit that. And John, um, hospitals have also increasingly become uh, targets of cyber attacks, especially ransomware attacks, where they just want money. And we now know an attack that diverted ambulances from East Texas hospitals on Thanksgiving has, is actually was more widespread than previously thought. It actually caused ambulances to be diverted in New Mexico and New Jersey, a, a huge danger to our healthcare system, potentially. Jake, this was... Uh targeting the computer systems of a major hospital provider that connected 40 hospitals, and it affected a number of them. But, you know, we think of cyber attacks as, well, it's a nonviolent crime. There's no blood on the floor. Once you do something that's diverting ambulances in critical care with a potential heart attack patient or a trauma wound, and you're diverting, say, from Mountainside Hospital in Montclair, New Jersey, to Belleville or to Newark, you're adding miles and you're adding minutes. And that means people could die from this. It's very serious. All right, John Miller and Sean Lingus, thank you so much to both of you. Coming up next, moments of humor and moments of inspiration in today's tribute service for former First Lady Rosalind Carter. Stay with us. She was like everyone else's grandmother in a lot of ways. Almost all of her recipes call for mayonnaise, for example. 
We all got cards from her on our birthdays. $20 bill in it. When I was 45, $20 bill. Later moment from the grandson of former First Lady Rosalind Carter during her moving tribute ceremony today. Carter passed away uh, last week at the age of 96. Despite his frail health, her husband, the former president, Jimmy Carter, was there along with all the living former first ladies and President Biden and former President Bill Clinton. CNN's Nick Valencia shares more of the emotional day for the Carter family and for the country. On a brisk Atlanta day under the beaming Georgia sun, family and friends of the former first lady, Rosalind Carter, gathered to celebrate her life. At 96 years old, her death was far from a life cut short. Her husband of more than 77 years, who was rarely seen without her, the former president, Jimmy Carter, was there by her side for one final time, despite his frail health. The 39th president has been receiving hospice care since February. Sitting alongside former first ladies and presidents Biden and Clinton, Carter's physical appearance was visibly diminished, but he was reportedly so determined to be there, he had a new suit tailor-made for the service. Three generations of Carters were present, all four of their children and 11 of their grandchildren who served as honorary pallbearers. Their marriage, described by so many, especially their own children, as one of the greatest love stories of all time. They've given us such a great example of how a couple should relate. My mom spent most of her life in love with my dad. Their youngest child and only daughter, Amy, struggling through tears, reading a letter written 75 years ago by her father to her late mother. When I see you, I fall in love with you all over again. Does that seem strange to you? It doesn't to me. Goodbye, darling. Until tomorrow, Jimmy. Jason Carter, the couple's grandson, recounting some of his fondest memories of his grandmother. We were on a family trip, and we were on a flight on Delta from here to somewhere, and we were all sitting in the back of the airplane together, and it took off, and we looked over, and my grandmother took out this Tupperware of pimento cheese. And this loaf of bread, and she just started making sandwiches. And, and she gave it to all of us grandkids and everyone else, and then she just started giving them to other people on the plane. And dear friends describing a woman full of immense love. Because of Rosalind Carter, millions of lives are better off. What a gift she left. And the world will be as one. And country singers Trisha Yearwood and Garth Brooks performed. A touching tribute for a woman who led such a full life and brought hope to so very many people in this world. Today's service was poignant, it was somber, and even at times lighthearted. Today was much so a public celebration of life for Rosalind Carter. Tomorrow will be the third and final day of her memorial services. The funeral procession will continue in her small hometown of Plains. The First Lady is headed home. Jake. All right, Nick Valencia in Atlanta, thank you so much. A look near the White House where the National Park Service is saving Christmas as we speak. A sappy ending to this one. That's next. A story now whose bark is worse than its bite. The National Christmas tree was no match for the gusty weather here in D.C. This afternoon, people watched on pines and needles as crews finished lifting the tree back into place after it Toppled over, wind gusts hit 40 miles an hour in the nation's capital today. The National Christmas Tree Lighting Ceremony 
is scheduled to take place on Thursday. And because I know you're wondering, the National Park Service says the tree is a 40-foot Norway spruce. Two big programming notes picking up tonight. 30 teams compete, eight advance, one champion. Coverage of the NBA in-season tournament tonight at 7 Eastern on TNT and on Max. And then a big night tomorrow on CNN. Gail King and Sir Charles Barkley for the premiere of their new show, King Charles. That's tomorrow night at 10 p.m. Eastern only, only here on CNN. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room live from Tel Aviv. I'll see you tomorrow. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.